Well, hello, everybody. I'm so happy that you're here. If I haven't met you, my name is Nate, and over the next several minutes, we're going to take a look at some of the scriptures that are important to us. We started this series called What? And it's the hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus um, is kind of known for the kind, compassionate, loving things that he typically says to people. But there are times in the New Testament that record words that are very challenging. They're difficult. Words that made people um, frustrated at times, disturbed, confused. And it's not that Jesus is obtuse or confusing. It's not that his message is overly complex. It's that I think at times he wanted to say things that would um, shake people out of the status quo, that would challenge assumptions about God, about human beings that were inaccurate, that we just developed. They were cultural. They, they were comfortable to us. And Jesus would say, actually, that's the wrong way of perceiving this. So what we're going to look at is uh, the concept of faith. Because faith is, you know, it's an interesting, complex topic. What is faith? How much faith do I have? I know that this is a room full of people who we've prayed for different things at different times in our lives. And we say, but there have been times when God's answered these prayers, and then I bet there's not a one of us that would say, and there have been times when I was desperate. My prayers were desperate. And I feel like I was faith-filled, and it didn't seem like God answered my prayers the way I would want him to answer them. And we've wondered, what's the problem? Because there's really a few options. Is the problem with God? Did he not hear? Does he not care? Is he distant? Um, Or was the problem with me? That's usually what we boil it down to. Did I not have adequate faith? And so here's what I find. Oftentimes we feel insecure in our level of faith. Anybody relate to that? Like I I pray really hard, but I must not have had enough faith because I didn't see what I wanted to see happen. Well, in this account from the book of Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is going to interact with a very, very desperate man. And this desperate man has a son that is very sick, very disturbed, in a life-threatening situation. And Jesus is going to teach a lesson about faith that was offensive to his disciples and can be a little bit confusing to us as well. Before we read Matthew 17, though, I think understanding the concept, the, the context will help us understand a little bit of the concept. So here's a, a picture which... When you look at this, you typically don't think, oh, there's Israel. That kind of looks like Montana, doesn't it? That's Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the northernmost part of Israel, and it is 9,200 feet tall. So it's a substantial mountain, and it really looks big when you're there because when you're in Galilee, um, you're right near sea level, and so 9,200 feet is way, way up there. It's a big, monstrous hill. And I'm going to show you the next picture. This is something you typically don't think of when you think of Israel. <laughs> There's a ski area on top of Mount Hermon. Now, it doesn't get to open up every year, but most of the time there's just like two little lifts. And there's actually the, the Israeli um, uh, alpine defense unit trains up there. But sometimes they don't get to train because there's no snow. Um, so it's, it makes Red Lodge look like Big Sky, Okay. It's a little tiny thing. If we go back to that next picture, the, the first picture, here's why I show this to you. The context of what's going to happen happens some down, somewhere down here at the base of Mount Hermon. And right before we jump into the text, 
Jesus has left massive crowds because there are these crowds that are following him because they're desperate. They're desperate for miracles. They're desperate because the people they love are tormented by different things. And they're desperate to hear these new words that he's speaking about God. So Jesus leaves nine of his disciples and the crowds somewhere at the base of the mountain. Then he takes Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples. And they make a journey up the mountain. We don't know exactly how far or where they went. It's likely they could have gone to the very top. Would have been a multiple day journey that they were away. And here's what happens somewhere on this mountain is Jesus uh, tells Peter, James, and John, wait here, and he goes a little ways away, and he begins to pray. And sometime during this prayer, it's called the transfiguration, and guess who shows up? Moses and Elijah. Now, if, if you're a young Jewish boy, it just doesn't get any better than this, all right? There's your rabbi. There's the guy that teaches you that you're following, and Moses who's the author of the law, the great deliverer, the book of Exodus, leads people out of slavery. And there's Elijah, the preeminent Old Testament prophet. And you can't believe your eyes because Jesus is interacting with the two of them. This is unbelievable. And then it gets better. It gets better. A voice calls out, and it is the audible voice of God. And he says, this is my son right here, this affirmation of who Jesus is. And so these guys are blown away. And they're thinking, I can't believe that we were the three that were chosen to come up here. We just saw Moses. We just saw Elijah. We just heard the voice of God. And then Peter, who's always like, I got to do something. Peter says, hey, let's build three little booths. And one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Jesus says, that's a dumb idea. Why would we do that? Like, I don't get it. So they come back down the mountain. So probably the phrase, a mountaintop experience, comes from things like this. It's just exceptional. So they're coming back down the mountain. I can just picture Peter, James, and John. They're kind of like skipping down. And we can't wait to tell the nine loser disciples (laughs) who are stuck down with the needy people. What we just saw, what we just experienced. So they're on their way down the mountain. And this is where we pick up Matthew chapter 17. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. You can sense his desperation. He's kneeling. He's in this posture of help me. He has seizures. This is his son. And is suffering greatly. This isn't, this isn't something that's passive. This is, this is causing incredible angst. I see the pain in my son. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples. That's the nine disciples who were left below. But they could not heal him. And Jesus says this, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Okay, this is where it starts to get a little difficult. You unbelieving and perverse generation. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to the father? Because that's a little insensitive. Is he talking to the nine disciples who couldn't heal this boy? Is he talking to the crowds as a whole? 
And, and, and imagine if you were one of those nine disciples, you had just spent significant time and effort praying for this boy. You've been praying for different people. You've been trying to help people. And when Jesus comes down off the mountain, you just heard Peter came over and said, guess what we saw? We saw Moses and Elijah. And we heard God's voice. And Jesus is now going to call us unbelieving and perverse. The word perverse here is a little bit different than how we think about it in English. It means this, is rather than being able to stay on a straight line, you keep veering off. Instead of being able to follow and trust me, you, you keep going off into uh, independence and uh, I, I can trust in myself. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Just like that. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, I bet they have more questions, like, why did you call us unbelieving and perverse? But they also just want to know this, why couldn't we drive it out? I mean, we prayed and prayed and prayed. We saw the desperation of this man. We saw the condition of the boy. We've done, actually, we've done the same thing in the past. We couldn't do it. Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. So little faith. The, the word here in Greek, I'll give it to you in a few moments, but it means uh, minuscule. Minuscule. You have minuscule faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain. Now, remember the setting, the background? It's very likely that Jesus is looking over his shoulder. He's looking at the tallest mountain in the entire region, 9,200 feet. You could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now here's a line that is so difficult for us to understand and has probably been applied to so many situations that it shouldn't be. Um, nothing? Really? Okay, so I'm going to pray over my bank account right now. With mustard seed faith, I'm just going to try enough. I'm going to add some zeros. My car's not working. They say the engine's blown. Lord, heal it. Turn it into a Mercedes, right? <laughs> so nothing is impossible. Well, where do we go with that? Where do we go with that? What is Jesus getting at here? Why does he seem to be so rough on those nine disciples who had stayed behind? Even on the crowds. What's he talking about when he says, if all you have was just faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this uh, mountain, move from here to there, and it would. Nothing is impossible. Well, does anybody find that nothing's been impossible for you? I mean, we, we all have issues in our life that feel like impossibilities. They feel monstrous. They feel big. This phrase, you can move mountains, it was actually quite a common phrase that the rabbis, the teachers of the day would use. And they would use it in reference to, you can move a mountain of doubt. So if you could teach someone, help them believe in God, you can move this mountain of doubt that obscured their view of God. You can move that mountain from here to here so that they could have a clear picture of who God was. I want us to look at this for just a moment through the eyes of two different people. One would be the boy. The boy. Now, when we read this, to many of us, if you've had... Uh, a friend, a family member, an associate who's had epilepsy, 
we read this and we think, well, medically, likely in today's world, they'd call this something like epilepsy, where without medications, there's these uncontrolled seizures. Um, of course, they didn't have that diagnosis then, but it seems that there's even something more because Jesus addresses this healing him, but also saying whatever this is that's tormenting him needs to go away. And it seems like this force in his life is more than making him physically ill. It's trying to destroy him. It throws him into fires and it throws him into waters where the boy could drown or be burned. And so there's some, there's a combination of sickness that looks something like epilepsy with some sort of evil demonic reality that's coupled together trying to destroy this boy. It's an interesting phrase. It's only used once in the entire New Testament. We would literally translate this word with, where he has seizures as moonstruck. Moonstruck. So in the ancient world, in ancient Israel in particular, they believed that things like this that had to do with uncontrollable uh, insanities or seizures had to do with the waning and the waxing of the moon. And the moon was the thing that had this evil control over people's lives. So the dad says, he's moonstruck. Like there's this thing out there that controls him. And Jesus, what, he takes care of it right away. So here you have this boy who's been suffering. He's probably been through every medical treatment you can imagine. He's been to everybody to be prayed for. He's been ostracized. He, he has this diagnosis that the moon has power over his life. He's helpless. He's exhausted. And the father, imagine the father, if you've ever had a kid who is sick, a grandkid, you, you just know how helpless you feel when a kid's sick. I know what this dad would do. I know this dad probably prayed more than once. God, give this sickness to me. Take it away from my boy. He's innocent. He's watched his son suffer. He's watched the social issues that have risen because his son doesn't function like everyone else. And people wondered what's wrong with him. They didn't understand science. Hey, the pain he's experienced. and He's desperate. And he finally hears about this guy, Jesus, who can heal. And so he travels to the far north of Israel, and he's looking for Jesus, and Jesus isn't there, but nine of his disciples, nine of his followers, and his disciples seem to be able to do this. So he says, finally, it's my turn. He waits in line. He says, here's my son. He's in a desperate situation. And the disciples start to pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray, and nothing happens. It's just one more disappointment. It's one more time of wondering, does God care? Is he involved? What's the problem? Is, is there something wrong with me? Did I do this? Am I responsible for how my son is suffering? All those things we go through. And then Jesus heals the son. Bring him to me. Heals the son and then addresses everyone regarding their confusion around this whole idea of faith. I'm going to show you just two pictures quickly before we look at three things I think will help us to understand this. Jesus uses, of course, a mustard seed uh, as his metaphor, illustration for faith. So that's a tiny little mustard seed. It was the smallest seed that they used in agriculture. So it was commonly said, if you were trying to describe to someone how small something would, would be, you'd say... Uh, Oh, it was like the size of a mustard seed. And automatically, everybody knew, oh, it's almost weightless and it's hard to find. That means it's tiny. That's how you describe small things. Now, here's the next picture. The interesting thing about mustard seeds is they grow into a myriad of different plants. 
So there are mustard plants that are about this tall. There are some that are seven, eight feet tall. There are mustard bushes. So the bush and the tree, they're the exact same seed, but according to their environment, they grow in a way that's most adaptable. They adapt to a way that will help them thrive the most. This is a full-grown mustard tree. They very rarely grow to this size, but they can grow up to 20 or 30 feet tall. Here's what they know about mustard trees, is they grow in the most adverse places you could ever imagine. They're actually used today in this region of the world for reclamation projects. So where there's been mining, where there has been, especially salt mines, They'll find that when, when the ground is polluted with salt, you can put a mustard seed in the ground, that tree will grow, and a mustard tree has the capacity to grow in almost any environment. They don't need water. They can grow, they'll adapt. If they need to be a bush, they'll be a bush. If they can grow into a full-size tree, they'll grow into a full-size tree. So Jesus says, a tiny little seed, and he says, faith is something like a mustard seed. I find that fascinating because I love Jesus is saying, at least in part, faith can grow in any environment. No matter how desperate, no matter how dry, no matter how toxic, it has this ability to respond. And it can adapt. Some of, anybody have, like, okay, my faith might be, maybe, maybe you're brand new, you're trying to figure out what you believe, and you're like, I've got mustard seed, and maybe it's barely sprouting. And some of you have been around for a while, you say, you know what? Man, it's grown a bit. Just I've had experiences over the years. So let's talk a little bit about what Jesus is getting at, why he uses such strong language. Number one, number one, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but I really believe this is what Jesus is getting at. It's not about how much faith we have. What is important is who our faith is in. When Jesus says you have to have faith the size of a mustard seed, he is not talking about the quantity of our faith. He's talking about who our faith is actually in. Because oftentimes, I think we take responsibility and we think it's up to us to make things happen. We have to produce enough faith. And when we have that concept that it's up to us to produce enough faith, what we've done is we've taken responsibility back on ourselves. We put ourselves at the center of it. Okay, I grew up um, during like the 70s and 80s Star Wars era. I just want to know, did anybody else in the room confuse, you grew up in the church and with Star Wars, and the force and faith were kind of linked somehow? (laughs) Did you ever try to move anything? Come on. Yeah. Me trying to access the the force... You know, after I saw Luke Skywalker, like, bring his fighter out of the swamp in front of Yoda, I'm like, I'm in. It sounds like a Bible, right? And I I would sit there as a boy, literally, and I'd be like, okay, have enough faith or force or whatever it is, and try to move things. And I always wonder, did it move when my eyes were closed? (laughs) There was no one there to verify. So I, but here's the problem. That was me at the center trying to exercise faith. Me producing something to make something miraculous happen. And what I've done is I put myself at the center of it. Jesus is saying this. Listen, it's not about how much faith. That's why he uses the mustard seed. He goes, you could have the tiniest measurable amount of faith that we even have out there. And, and with that, you can move mountains. You could do the impossible. 
He's actually saying it's not about how much faith you have. What's important is who is your faith in? Let me give you another example. A couple of years ago, we took the whole family up and we're going to cut our Christmas tree. And some of you have done this. And it's kind of like that quest, you know. You're like, we got to find the perfect tree. We got six people in the family. And like, like this one's perfect. And somebody else is like, no, it's ugly, right? And so you just keep looking. So finally we find this tree. But the problem is it's across the creek. It's across the creek. And here's the thing about the creek is it's frozen. But when you stand by the edge of it, you can hear the water rushing underneath. So you're just not sure how stable this is. And you don't want to get wet. It's, you know, like 10 degrees out. And so we're standing at the edge of the creek, and there is the perfect Christmas tree, about 20 yards across. And so what does everybody do? Well, I look at my youngest, who's the lightest, <laughs> and I go, okay, here's the deal, buddy. I want you to test out the ice to see if we can get across. And what does my wife say? Absolutely not. <laughs> if you want that tree, you go. And I'm like, but I am by far carrying the most mass, that's how I put it, <laughs> of anyone in this family. And so everybody just looks at me. So here's you step out, a little bit at a time, right? Okay, so far so good. And it's the water running underneath that's a little bit freaky. It's not about how much faith I had. It's about what I'm trusting in. I, I could have had tons of faith. But if the ice is thin, it doesn't matter how much faith I have, right? But if, if I step out and there was, I got to admit, there was a little cracking sound. It's not me like, have enough faith and it'll hold me. No. The issue is, is the ice thick enough? What is my faith based on? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, listen, you could, you could bring together the tiniest amount of faith that we can even measure. But it's not about how big your faith is. It's who do you trust in? And here's the problem. We can have faith in a whole bunch of things. A whole bunch of faith. We can have faith in models. Well, I always do it this way. I think the church has a tendency to do this. We put our faith in a model. We have faith in methodologies. We have faith in formulas. We have faith in experiences. And I think most dangerous, we have faith in faith. Faith in me having enough faith. And so when I'm praying, here's what I'm, instead of praying to God, my faith is in God, I'm saying, do I have enough faith? I have faith that if I have enough faith, God will hear and respond. And again, that's taking God out of the center of it. Jesus is saying, listen, if you had this much faith, you could have healed that boy. If you had this much faith, you could move a mountain. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about who is your faith in. I wonder this. I wonder this. If the nine disciples, because that's who he's talking to when he talks about the, the mustard seed. Do you think they had any resentment? Any frustration? Oh, it's Peter, James, and John got to go see Moses and Elijah. Hear God. That would have been nice, Jesus. Instead, you left us here with all the angry, hurt people, and we're praying for people, and we can't do anything. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, which is Mark's account of this, Matthew writes in chapter 17, um, Jesus also adds this. He goes, listen, you couldn't do this because you can't do these type of things without um, faith and prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. So I think what's happening here is 
the disciples, in their resentment, like how long is Jesus going to be gone? Why didn't he invite me up the hill? They've lost connection with the very God they were praying to. And so they were praying to a, a Jesus that they resented. They, they were praying to a father while they're wondering, what's wrong with us? Why were we left out? So Jesus is saying, it's not about how big your faith is. It's about who's that God that you're praying to? Is he big enough? Is he able? An interesting thing is earlier in the book, Matthew 10, 8, Jesus explicitly says, I, I give you a power over evil spirits. And they had apparently dealt with similar cases multiple times in their life. They've been able to pray for people in the same situation. But something's happened where they've been disconnected through the God that they're praying to. And they've lost that capacity to move mountains. So it's not about the amount of my faith. So you and I do not need to feel guilty. It's about the God I'm praying to. Here's the second thing, which is related. Number two, more important than the size of our faith is the size of our God. Okay, more important than the size of our faith is the size of our God. Here's this, this word uh, that means minuscule faith. It's uh, oligopistia. Jesus says, they said, why couldn't, why couldn't we do that? He goes, because you have minuscule faith. All you need is a tiny bit. You only have a tiny bit because it's the size of your God has diminished. And when the size of your God diminishes, then your faith in him diminishes as well. I love what Edmund Chan says. He says this. Big God, small problems. Small God, big problems. I think there is something to this. Okay? The, you can have problems. Both of these scenarios, there's problems. But the size of your problems is directly proportional to our view of who God is. So if, if my God is big, if he is able, if he is strong, if he is sovereign, if he is loving and caring, if he is involved in this world, here's what happens. In comparison, my view of God and my problems, my problems seem much, much smaller. If my view of God is diminished, if I'm not sure he's trustworthy, if I'm resentful towards him, and maybe these disciples were, suddenly my problems grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And I humbly, I want you to know, I say this humbly, I'm not trying to create any type of shame. Some of us who find ourselves constantly surrounded by really big problems, Big problems, big controversies. Things are always stressful. There's lots of anxiety. People are against us. Uh, it, life feels unfair. I want to ask you this. Could it be? Could it be that it's not really an issue of how big my problems are? Because other people have problems that are just as big. Could it be that the real issue is I have a small God? I don't actually trust him. I don't actually believe that he cares. Therefore, my problems just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Big God, small problems. Small God, 
big problems. I don't know if there's a more classic way to illustrate this than the story of David and Goliath. Just one of my favorite ancient Old Testament story. This is a man named Goliath. He is from the tribe of the Philistines. This guy is a monster of a human being. Just monstrous. And it's not just that he's tall and skinny. He is tall and big. And people don't, they, they don't come like that. And so the, the two armies are on two hillsides. There's a, a valley in between. And they face off every day. And here comes Goliath with his booming voice. And twice a day, every day, he threatens the people of Israel. And he says, I defy you. I defy your gods. I dare you to send someone out to fight me. If they can defeat me, we'll surrender to you. It's been going on for weeks, day after day after day. And every time Goliath shows up, what it, all the soldiers turn around. They hide. Nobody has had the courage to even say anything back. And along comes David. He has his big brothers who are there fighting. And the irony is David's dad, Jesse, has said, I want you to go deliver cheese to your brothers and to the, the captains. And so, I mean, you just, here comes David to a fight, and he's got like a basket with cheese in it. Right? I just always think that's really funny. Like, here comes a cheese delivery boy, and he happens to be there right when Goliath was doing his twice-a-day announcement. And, and all the Israelites, his brothers, they hide, they turn around. And David, who, who's somewhere probably between 13 and 16, says, hey, why don't you guys go out and fight him? And they're like, listen, cheese boy. He is big. He is mean. We don't stand a chance. And, and David says, I'll do it. And his big brother goes, Ew. he starts criticizing he says, you're so arrogant. You're so full of yourself. David's like, no, no, no. Somebody just needs to take care of the giant. So David ends up going out. It's like, it leaves his cheese behind finally, which is nice. And he takes out a sling, which is that weapon of a shepherd. And here comes Goliath. And he's, you know, he's like biblical cussing out, like, I'm going to kill you. And David, I mean, here's, here's like a young teenage boy. He goes, actually, you know what's going to happen today? He goes, hey, Big G. I'm going to kill you, I'm going to cut off your head, and I'm going to feed your body to the birds. <laughs> Goliath, you think I'm a dog that you come out with me, this little boy? So we know the story. David throws a stone, strikes Goliath, Goliath falls dead. That's where we leave it off um, for children's church. But then David does go over, takes out his sword, chops off his head, and he's like, ah! right? We don't, leave, we, don't, we don't put that part in children's church. It's just like, no, and then Goliath fell over and he fell asleep permanently. No, he went to yeah. Then David goes full on brave heart on him. Okay. Okay, why do you have thousands of trained soldiers who are terrified and you've got one shepherd cheese boy who isn't? It's, it's just this. Everybody saw Goliath, all nine feet of him. And he was so big, it was a mountain that blocked their view of God. And you've got this guy named David who says, you know what? I've had some experiences with big hairy things. Bears and lions, they came to kill my dad's sheep. And you know what? I smacked them with a rock. God delivered me. God delivered the animal into my hands. And you know what? I see a big, hairy, nine-foot-tall thing out there. And I'm pretty certain that the same God who did that in the past will do that now. My view of God is that he's bigger than Goliath. God's bigger than the mountain that stands in front of me. It's the only difference. How big is my God? If my God's small, I, I can't even see him. 
behind my problems. If my God's big, he looms over my problems. And my problems pale in comparison. F.F. Bruce says this, one of my favorite theologians. It's not the amount of faith which brings the impossible within reach, but the power of God which is available to even the smallest faith. It's not the amount of faith. It's the power of God which is available to even the smallest faith. And then point number three is this. Uh, faith is developed. Faith is developed. It's interesting that Jesus uses a seed as his basic teaching metaphor here. And I think he's saying something about that there's a power within a seed. If you just had a tiny bit of faith, here's what happens. That seeds, all seeds have tremendous potential. Seeds are meant as a form of reproduction. They develop, they mature, they emerge, they perpetuate themselves. That's the nature of it. So faith is something that needs to be planted, needs to be cultivated, and needs to be matured. There's something that happens like this. I, I wish I could say, hey, here's the deal. Once you go through a scary situation and you really trust God, then all of a sudden your faith ramps up and you like get a merit badge in having faith. And for the rest of your life, you'll have faith in every situation. That's not how it happens in my life, and I bet that's not how it happens in your life. There are times when I've trusted God and it's built my faith, but rather than my faith being on this upward trajectory all the time, I find like my faith is a lot more like the Exodus story. The people who are leaving slavery in Egypt, and then what happens, it's bizarre. Like I get frustrated when I read the book because their faith is like this. So God does something extraordinary. He delivers them from Egypt. He, he closes the Red Sea. Well, first he opens the Red Sea for them to walk across, and then he closes the Red Sea on the Egyptian army that's coming to kill them. And their faith is like, whoa! God opened up the sea and then closed it. Then a month later, we just want to go back to Egypt. God doesn't love us. He doesn't care for us. We're hungry. It's hot. It was really good back then. What? And it, the, the, the whole story of Exodus is them going back and forth. And you're thinking, wait a minute. God just gave you water out of a rock. God, when you're thirsty, he takes care of you, whether it's a polluted pool. When you're hungry, he gives you every morning you wake up and God provides this supernatural food on the ground called manna. And later that day, you're like, God doesn't love us. What did you eat this morning? Every time there's a miracle. And here their faith just keeps plummeting, plummeting. See, that's the story of me. That's the story with you. Is I wish I could say, I've learned to trust. But I think you can begin to learn to trust. When you plant faith, when you cultivate it in your life, I think it begins to grow. But it's not about how big my faith is. I've matured. Anybody in the room say, you know what, right now I actually got avocado seed faith. It's massive. Maybe even coconut. Like, I have so much faith. I think all, it's not about how big the size of my faith is. It's about experiences trusting him. You just do it enough, and your view of God gets bigger. And when the next big scary thing comes, okay, okay, I could freak out right now, or I could remember who God is. I could remember what he has done. I could remember the stories of the Bible. I could remember the stories of my own life where God has been faithful when I've been in sticky, difficult, painful situations and he's never let me go. 
And so I'm holding on to that right now. And it's not that I'm mustering up a big piece of faith. It's that I am having a big view of God. And that little tiny bit of faith in me, no matter how minuscule, no matter how in a, just insufficient it is, it connects me with a God who's king of the universe. And so my fear dissipates. And peace comes into my life. You take a moment and pray with me. Lord, prayer and faith is so often confusing to us. But maybe that's because we tend to get it wrong, like the disciples did. We wonder if maybe how much faith we have is what's really important in our prayers. But that puts the emphasis back on us. We want to put the emphasis on, on you and how big you are and how able you are. So God, we, we want to learn how to build faith through experiences. Romans says this, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. It seems to be that the more we're around you, the more we read the stories of people who exhibited faith, the more we learn to trust you, how we build our faith. And so, Lord, for the things that we've been praying about, we're not putting the emphasis on how much faith we can produce. We will put the emphasis on how big and able you are. For all of us who have been frustrated and disappointed, maybe we feel like the nine disciples left behind. Why do other people have these tremendous experiences? I've been down here and I've been praying and I've been working and we feel as if God is distant and we feel unappreciated. We don't feel like God has cared for us and we've lost connection to the very God that we've been praying to. Lord, forgive us for being perverse in our journey and faithless. We will trust you. Would our perspective of you grow? Lord, for any of us who have massive problems right now, and I understand they are very complex and there are difficult things that happen in this world, but for any of us whose problems just seem massive, I pray that bigger still would be our view of God, that we would understand you're able to deal with the finances, you're able to deal with the fragmented relationships, you're able to deal with the brokenness of our lives, you're able to deal with the business, you're able to deal with our broken hearts debt, our fear, would our view of God ever expand? One more thing, if you keep your eyes closed. I just want to make an opportunity for anybody who would be here today and maybe you'd say, Nate, uh, I'm on a journey and I think I'm ready to trust this God. I'm ready to surrender my life to him. Here's the beautiful thing. He takes you as you are. He loves you. He knows your failures. He knows your potentials. You realize, I need someone to save me. And I don't just want to believe Jesus existed. I want to surrender my life and begin to follow him. If that's you, this is your moment. Would you raise your hand? Make eye contact with me. Yeah, both of you. Your son, your daughter of God. Yes, ma'am. You're his. You're his. Anybody else, if that's you, wave at me, would you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're his. Yes. Yes. Both of you right there. Okay, over here. Yeah. Wow. Gentlemen, all of you. 
Ma'am, yeah. Sons and daughters of God, forgiven, made new. All five of you there, that's beautiful. And back there as well. Yeah. Everybody in the balcony, if that's you. Okay, yeah. I see you, yes, ma'am. You're his, you're his. Yeah, right there as well. Beautiful. Everybody, would you applaud for those who raised their hands? It's a really, really significant step. Uh, welcome to a new family, all right? Uh, everybody raise their hands. So it's a new family. It's dysfunctional like your last family, um, but it's led by this perfect loving God. So that's the good news, okay? That's the good news. Uh, if you did raise your hand, I'd love for you to head to one of these I Have Decided banners. I've got a Bible, a little book to help you get started, talk to somebody. Everybody else, be the hands and feet, mouthpiece of Jesus. If you need prayer up front, there's people you can trust. God bless you. Big God. Little problems. <laughs>